Thank you, Glenn. Okay, let me go to the next slide. Oh, brothers, did I mess up there? <clears throat> okay. Just go home and do the lesson for this <laughs> <laughs> And then you won't have our interruptions. <laughs> you know, our pastor teacher struggled to preach without an audience, and it's difficult. It's, it's difficult. Okay, so the proper trustworthy interpretation, the Greek word exegeomai is used in Luke 24:35. So turn there. This is the narrative about the two disciples uh, to whom Christ joins himself after his resurrection. And we've got the use of this particular verb, and it helps us understand exegesis. So that's why I'm referring to it. Remember, he walked with them and he talked with them and uh, he revealed himself to them in the breaking of bread. And then the two disciples decide not to even spend the night at Emmaus, but to go back to Jerusalem and see the other uh, disciples. And it says in verse 35, then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The word translated told is exegetomai, and it can be translated explain, interpret, tell, report, describe. So this is perhaps not the best use of that word, but it is a use of that word. Eisegesis, as I referred to earlier, is reading one's own meaning into the passage. And unfortunately, um, in decades past, people have come to Bible study asking the question, well, what does this passage mean to you? That's, that's a later question to be asked. The first question to be asked is, what does this passage mean to the author? Once we get the author's meaning, then we can ask what it means to us or how it applies to us. Eisegesis is reading one's meaning into the passage. Exegesis, ek, is the Greek word for of or from or out of. It's a, it's a preposition. Um, so it would be drawing the author's meaning out of the passage, looking at everything uh, he has written and using the syntactical relationships between the words, understanding what he was trying to communicate. In fact, what he did communicate through the words. And when we get that understanding, we are on solid ground uh, for saying, thus saith the Lord, because we've understood what the divine and human author together uh, intended in what they wrote. Okay, Fred, you're going to like this, this one. Here's an overview of historical hermeneutical methodologies. So, uh, we have the interpretive method on the left and the interpretive result on the right. If we come to the scriptures using a literal hermeneutic, a normal, everyday, literal hermeneutic, we're going to end up with the author's meaning. At least I hope we will. That's, that's the intention. If we come to the scriptures with an allegorical meaning, what will we come up with? A fanciful meaning. Uh, an apocalyptic method will will result in an end of the world meaning. A traditional 
methodology of interpretation will end up with the church's meaning or dogma. A rationalistic method of interpreting the scriptures will end up with a demythologized meaning. In other words, they're going to take away all of the supernatural and just leave us with a rational uh, statement. And then a subjective method will end up with the reader's meaning. Uh, meaning. And unfortunately, in, in modern uh, studies, that's where hermeneutics is right now. It's in a quagmire of this uh, uh, reader response methodology where, what, where they uh, say that the reader's meaning is as important as the author's meaning. Yes. It seemed to be what Steve was talking about in the sermon today when he talked about people who um, say, Lord, uh, speak to me as you did to them, and they'll take it. And you see it everywhere in, in some of the current uh, literature. People say, Oh, God showed me this is what he meant. Yes. I, I, thank you. I, I won't go down that road right now. <laughs> thank you. Okay, so here's a, here's a sample text. Genesis 15:5. Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, God said to Abram. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Well, if we take a literal meaning, we're going to say Abram's descendants are going to be innumerable. I mean, who can count the stars? Yeah. An allegorical meaning will be, you will enjoy many spiritual children. Hmm. An apocalyptic meaning would say, well, believing Israelites will populate the end times. A traditional meaning, God's people, those who receive the sacraments, will be innumerable. A, rash, a rationalistic meaning, the Jews will procreate naturally. Okay? And a subjective meaning, I feel abundantly blessed because God promises Abram a plentiful future and me too. So it depends on the methodology, the hermeneutical methodology of a person to the text, uh, the, the resulting um, meaning, derived meaning, depends on that methodology. And that's why I think we need to spend some time on hermeneutical methodology, because if we get that right, then when we come to the book of Revelation, or we come to Isaiah, or Jeremiah, or any prophet, uh, from the scriptures, the Lord Jesus himself and the, and the prophetic teachings that he gave us, then we'll understand what he intended to me, uh, to, to say, what, what in fact he did say. And when we understand that meaning, we're on good ground. And then we understand the end times. Okay. We, we need to enter into various views of the millennium. The millennium is... Uh, the lightning rod issue, perhaps, uh, in eschatology. Turn to Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that the so that he might not 
deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection, blessed and holy, is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. How many times do we see the, the temporal marker there? One thousand years? Six times. And so the doctrine or the understanding of a millennial period uh, is based primarily on this passage. This is the jumping off passage to help us understand, I believe, the new covenant passages in the Old, Older Testament and what they relate about the Davidic son that's coming who will reestablish um, the Davidic throne and, um, and so forth. So chiliasm, um, and as, as you can see there, the Greek word is kilioi, um, meaning 1,000. It refers in a general sense to the doctrine of the millennium or the kingdom age. The word is used many times in scriptures, often about the, you know, the numbers of people, uh, whether it's in an army or a census or whatever. Kilioi, kiliai, kilia, that's, it's, it's an adjective, so masculine, uh, feminine, neuter in, in form, a thousand, and you see it's used in various places, and then again, Revelation 20. All right, now here's an end time schematic, and uh, I'm partial to this one. I, I believe this one helps us understand in a very simple, chart-like uh, picture what's, what's going to take place in the future. You've got creation, in the past, you have the fall of man and the two lines, the line of Seth, the line of Cain. Then we come to the covenants and the law. Abraham is given a covenant. Uh, the people of Israel are given a covenant. David is given a covenant. Um, the prophets foretell a new covenant that's coming. But the people of Israel on, and the northern uh, kingdom as well as the southern kingdom of Judah both defected, apostatized, and were sent into exile. Thus, when, uh, as Paul tells us, at the appropriate time in human history, God sent his son. He sent his son into a Greek world ruled by Romans. And uh, so we have the, the first coming of the Lord Jesus. The church age follows the Lord Jesus. You see the red line coming down, but not all the way to the, the baseline and the curve back up. I understand that, uh, or I use that to represent the rapture of the church, the gathering up of the church by Christ, 
back to heaven during the tribulation period. There's the tribulation period in between those two vertical lines or Daniel's 70th week. Then at the end of the tribulation, in fact, probably ending the tribulation, the, the, the final event that ends the tribulation, Christ returns with his followers to earth. He sets up this millennial kingdom, this 1,000 year period. Um, the world will, will properly give glory to God during this 1,000 year period. <clears throat> Satan will be loosed. He will uh, surmount uh, the final rebellion. God will put it down. And then we will go to the new heaven and earth and the new Jerusalem as we see in Revelation 21 and 22. Okay, I'm going to stop there. Last question, quick question. Uh, John Wahlberg <clears throat> believed that the reason why there was so little done with the Millennial Kingdom in the, in the letter of Revelation in chapter 20 was because there had already been so much done on the Millennial Kingdom in the Old Testament. Hmm. A, a little bit okay okay so so Rick is observing that Dr. Walford said that we've got a, kind of a singular passage in Revelation 20 about the millennial period but Dr. Walford's contention was that because so much had already been written about that period of time and that era in the Old Testament then we didn't need as much in the New Testament yes and Revelation primarily focuses on that tiny little space in there we call the tribulation. So yes. I was just wanting your perspective on that. Yes. And, okay, so um, are you hungry? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so the short answer is that when you start looking in the Old Testament prophets regarding the new, the new covenant and the coming kingdom era, so much of it, so much of it refers to that period of time and what God will be doing that I completely concur with Dr. Walford. And, and who am I to, to say yay or nay to Dr. Walford? But, Look at, just read Isaiah, read Jeremiah, read Ezekiel, read Micah. You know, uh, these prophets are focusing on the failure of, of Israel in their day, but from the castigation of, of the present day Israelites or Judahites, they, they go back or, or they, they then project further uh, to the future and say, this is what God's going to do in spite of what you're doing right now. There is a coming day. There's a twofold message in, in the prophets. You're bad, you're out of line, God's going to judge you. But God loves you and he's going to keep his promises and it's going to be glorious. So you've got two messages from the prophets. Okay, let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we've read so many uh, passages today. We just revel in the fact that you sent your son to save us. And we also marvel that you sent your son to destroy the works of the devil. Give us good understanding, Lord, as we study these, uh, these issues. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.